It's kind of interesting that uh, Zoanne and I got paired up on this. I don't think we even really talked about what our idea was until after. Long after we were committed. Yeah, long after we were committed. So a couple of years ago, I did a presentation at the History Conference about the 1918 Special Session during World War One, And I wanted to follow that up with what happened afterwards, because there's always an afterward. Nothing ever just stops. And so I thought for this year it would be appropriate to take a look at the 1919 session. However, looking at the 1919 session is worse than peeling an onion. I so wish you would have told me that. Yeah, right? Because there is just so much going on, and there's so many different things that are going to blur your vision and take your attention away, that it was hard to focus on just a specific thing. So, this isn't about a specific thing, it's about specific things that happen basically between 1919 and about 1920. And I stopped at 1920 because if I didn't stop there, we'd be going all the way to 1937 and beyond. So, and Kirby doesn't give us that much time. Just kind of to recap, at the, uh, in February of 1918, Governor Sam Stewart decided that Montana needed a special session to deal with a lot of the activity that was going on in Montana. And there was a fair amount of strike activity going on, not just in Butte. It's not always just about Butte. <laughs> right? <laughs> the first strike in Montana that happened after the United States declared war, the first place troops were sent in Montana after the United States sent uh, declared war was Eureka, Montana, in the northwest corner of the state. And it was a timber strike. And that timber strike sparked a general strike that by the end of the summer of 1917 took in the entire Pacific Northwest and put about 50,000 loggers out on strike. It was bad enough that the federal government diverted federal troops from frontline service to send them to Washington State to cut screws. So, it ain't all about beauty. And I'll stop picking on beauty, because it's a, a little bit about beauty. Um, and so there was this situation in Northwest Montana, and then of course this little fluff thing going on down in view. There was this decision made by Stewart that, that Montana needed to have some regulations and some laws in place that would help promote the state's wartime effort. You know, uh, he had thrown together the Montana Council of Defense uh, after the end of the session, but he did after the end of the session. So it really had no appropriation of its own. Uh, what he was doing was he was borrowing money from other state pots to fund his Montana Council of Defense. He also needed some guidelines on how the Montana Council of Defense was going to operate. He had all these rascally wobblies out uh, in uh, the western part of the state in the timber industry. He had the miners going on strike, the uh, murder of Frank Little, riots, federal troops in Butte, federal troops in western Montana, and so forth. So a special session was in need. And they had what he viewed, and many people in Montana viewed, was a very weak and ineffective National Espionage Act. It was passed in 1917 that they didn't think dealt harshly enough with those individuals who were not promoting and not pushing full time for the American War effort. So they met in special session. Kind of interesting how things get divided out here. 
Stewart, in a letter to C.F. Morris, wrote, It seems to me that the time has come when somebody should call the hand of the lock of these agitators and see where they stand. The farmers, generally speaking, are loyal and patriotic. The farmers are always loyal and patriotic. However, there are only a few of them of the IWW type, type that are led astray by, by agitators. Most of those agitators coming from the Butte area and so forth. The IWW that was infiltrating the farm, the farmers movement with the nonpartisan league, which actually started in North Dakota. Nothing good happens that comes from North Dakota into Montana, just as custom. <laughs> so as such, Stewart called a special session, and one of the first things that they did was he appropriated money for his Montana Council of Defense. The Council of Defense was put into place to promote the war effort, primarily in, in terms of farm production and things like that, so to feed not only the soldiers that were being sent overseas, but to feed those individuals in Europe who had gone through three, four years of war already and were, were on, on, on the brink of starvation there. It went way beyond its scope uh, as it was defined. They passed Senate Bill uh, 2, which was an act that defined criminal syndicalism. And that's a big fancy word was for, we're going to figure out a way to shut down the IWW, which was preaching the overthrow of the capitalist system and up with the industrial democracy and so forth. So they passed that. Uh, they passed a joint um, House Joint Memorial asking Congress to pass necessary legislation defining the crime and providing for the punishment of sedition. In other words, they wanted the nation to take on a more active role in punishing those individuals that they saw as, as, as seditious or promoting sabotage, which again was something that the IWW was big on. I'm sure what that means. House Bill 6, the death. Uh, desecration of the uh, of the American flag. The flag always comes into these kind of situations uh, when, when they occur. And then House Bill 15, which was the manufacturing, buying, selling, transporting, or possession of explosive materials with the, quote, intent that some shall be used for the injury or destruction of persons or property. Okay, that seems, that seems fair. At the end of the special session, they passed a pretty vigorous, rigorous, I guess, if you will, Sedition law. It was a sedition law that Montana's U.S. Senator Henry Meyer tried to get passed on the federal level the year before, and it got shut down in committee. So essentially, they just took his sedition law and applied it in Montana. And then later that year, Myers reintroduced his sedition law, and it passed on the national level. The only difference between the two is that the national sedition law went out of business when Woodrow Wilson's term ended. The sedition law in Montana lasted until the 1970s, before it was ended. <laughs> and one of the things that they would do in the 1919 session is pass a uh, peacetime sedition law. So, but Stewart's hope was that Montana would be better prepared to face what was going on with the war. And this is February 1918. They figured the war was probably going to last until 1919, maybe 1920. Nobody banked on the German army collapsing as quickly as it did after American troops really started to arrive in Europe and the spring offensive in 1918 failed. And so all of a sudden it's November 1918 and there's an armistice. And sort of kind of peace, but not really. It's more like two schoolyard kids got tired of punching one another and they decided to put it off for a couple of days until they could recover and, and punch one another again. 
Except in this instance, we pause from November of 1918 until, depending on whether or not you want to look at the Asian side of World War II or the European side of World War II, 1937-1939, when we picked up in World War II. We just delayed hostilities for a while so everybody could rearm. The interesting thing is that while they stopped shooting at one another in Europe, all that angst and anger that had been boiled up at home to stir up patriotic fervor for the war effort had no place to go. They had no release for that aggression. So they turned it inward, essentially, on American citizens, on American immigrants, and so forth. And that's where the next section would be played out. Um, it would come out in the Red Scare of the 1919-1920s, of the calmer rates, which were as a result of the Red Scare. Partisan politics on both sides would ramp up the tension before, between, between both. So three months after the end of the war, the Montana legislature meets, and they're not done fighting the war. So they pass House Bill 28, which basically says that any flag symbolic of social or industrial revolution or opposition to organized government is forbidden. So in other words, no flying the red flag. And again, this was primarily aimed at the remnants of the IWW that was still in existence, despite the, the trial that had happened in Chicago earlier in 1918. There were still remnants of pockets of IWW in the state. They were staging, still staging sporadic strike activity in the timber industry and down in Butte as well. So they wanted to shut that down as much as possible. The other thing that concerned them, especially with this symbolic flag issue, was the nonpartisan league. As I mentioned, this was, this was an agrarian push for the nationalization of grain elevators and railroads and so forth to the benefit of the farmers. And one of the things that began happening in 1918 was that farm and labor started to get together uh, and try to figure out how they could control the political scene. And that made the established Democratic Party and the established Republican Party very nervous because the last thing you really wanted to do was have the farmers and the laborers get together and decide how things are going to run. That's just democracy. It's scary. The other big part of it was Americanization, House Bill 175. And this really kind of fascinated me. I never really thought too much about this whole Americanization idea. I know that Wilson was pretty adamant about the fact that America had to stamp out the hyphenated American. You couldn't be Italian American anymore, or German American, or Irish American. You needed to just be American. That hyphen had to disappear. That prefix had to disappear. You had to be an American. So basically, you're turning up the heat on the melting pot to get a better stew, but trying not to burn it at the same time. So there was the establishment of Americanization schools for, and I love this quote, for mentally normal persons over the age of 16. <laughs> I know plenty of 17-year-olds that are mentally normal, right? And, you know, the idea behind him wasn't all bad. It was to teach English to, to those uh, foreign-born individuals, to, to, to the immigrant families, as well as to the children as well. It was also to teach American history and uh, philosophy and so forth, so people would understand what was important about America and why they should embrace it wholeheartedly. Uh, and then they also left a fair amount of um, room for the school trustees themselves who ran Americanization programs through their school districts to decide what the curriculum was going to be. 
But these were going to be night schools. These were going to be done in the evening, not during the regular uh, part of the school day. House Bill 252 was the act that defined the crime of sedition and so forth. That was the Peacetime Sedition Act that they put into, into place at the end of hostilities in the war. House Bill 248 is an interesting, an interesting bill. An act to declare the civil rights of citizens of the state and providing penalties for the interference therewith and the method of trial for the, for infringement thereof. This was Bill Dunn's bill. His piece of legislation. Dunn was a radical labor leader. He was a socialist. He was a communist. He was everything that everybody was afraid of at this time. And he just happened to get elected to the legislature from Silver Bowl County as a Democrat, even though everybody knew he was a card-carrying uh, communist. So they really, really despised him. And he was getting hauled before the Montana Council of Defense by Will Campbell and his, his bunch. And basically, they were trying to hang him out to dry. And so this was Dunn's way of trying to get legislation on the books, or at least something on the books, that said, hey, wait a minute, you can't infringe upon somebody's civil rights or constitutional rights. You can't do that without any type of consequences. And there hadn't been any consequences in the actions that had been being taken place by the Council of Defense in a lot of these cases. That would come afterwards with some of the Supreme Court cases that were heard, but it, at this point it still hadn't occurred. And so I, I liken Dunn's bill to the equivalent of somebody wearing a Sherman button to a Confederacy picnic in Georgia. <laughs> it just didn't stand a chance. I, I don't even think it made it to a committee before it was just gone. Um, sent, sent it away. One of the other items passed was the uh, House Joint Memorial 14. There was a piece of federal legislation called the Smith-Bankhead Americanization Act that was before Congress. And so this joint memorial basically asked the uh, U.S. Congress to, to adopt this bill. And as I said, Americanization was, was, was really, it was a national attempt to end the hyphenated American. And it, there wasn't just legislation like this that was occurring uh, on the Americanization front. The National Council of Defense was getting in on it as well. And in the Montana Council of Defense records, there's a series of National Defense circulars that came out between November and December of 1918 that I, I thought was extremely interesting. Circular number 19 came out on November 2nd, 1918. And essentially it was asking Americans, true Americans, real Americans, to get foreign born to participate in American holidays. And what better holiday to participate in than Thanksgiving? So the circular urged Americans to invite immigrants to their Thanksgiving supper to show them what it really meant to be American and American ways and so forth. And for that individual American to do his part in making a true citizen out of that immigrant. The quote from the circular says, only from Americans can the newcomers catch the American spirit and only from Americans who are their friends can they catch it at its best. Let us hand it to them on Thanksgiving Day and at the same time each of us do do his part in the vast and infinitely important business of friend-making for America. Had this vision of William Clark inviting all these Irish immigrants to his house for Thanksgiving summer. <laughs> I'm sure it went over well. December 17, 1918, circular number 34. 
acknowledged the fact that there had been no concerted effort prior to the war to make Americans out of foreign-born citizens. And that's the quote, Americans out of foreign-born citizens. So obviously the night classes would help. This is why Montana adopted the bill for the Americanization classes that they had listed to put on into place. And one of the things that they were worried about was a foreign-born soldier. And so, yep, this is my grandfather. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in mid-1918 and was in a boot camp, I guess, if you will, basic training when the war ended. So he actually didn't get sent to Europe. He had filed first papers for citizenship back in 1915, and that's all the further he got. So while he was in the military, some of the officers gathered up as part of federal law at that time. All the immigrants who were not naturalized citizens took them to Chicago and had them get their final naturalization papers done there. So what this circular number 42 was concerned about is even though individuals like my grandfather were officially naturalized, they still weren't American and they still needed help. And so it was up to us as real Americans to help them assimilate into the culture and so forth so that they could better understand American life and institutions. They made a big play out of the fact that there was nothing worse than sending a foreign-born soldier overseas to fight in the U.S. Army who couldn't understand English because how was he supposed to follow orders then? Maybe they should have asked that of all the Germans that fought in the Union Army during the Civil War. So it was kind of an interesting situation and a lot of people jumped on board. Uh, Virginia Triplett Gaiman wrote in defense of the Smith-Bankhead Act, saying that through the war we came to realize that our foreign-born have been terribly neglected. For only in the soil of ignorance can the germs of anarchy develop. And this isn't too radical from this whole idea of how they were approaching the IWW. They had set back, rested on their laurels, allowed the IWW to come in and poison the mind of the working class against American capitalism and so forth. And so they had to take back control of that. In Montana, they came to that conclusion in 1918 when the Montana Lumber Manufacturers Association got together in Missoula. And they decided that first and foremost what they were going to do is make sure that these guys had something decent to read in the lumber camps instead of the little red songbook of the IWW and the socialist literature. So they were actually going to work with the Missoula County Library to make sure that these folks had good wholesome American reading material in the logging camps so they could help uh, switch them around. So this is kind of the same scenario playing out as, 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 we, as, we, uh, as we move along. And as I said, there, there are so many aspects to what's happening and so forth that it's hard to land on one thing and follow it from beginning to end. So it's a series of various things that hopefully paint a broader picture of, of, of how dysfunctional this time period actually was. And probably the poster child for dysfunction uh, at this time was Will Campbell of the uh, Helena Independent. Will Campbell uh, had a strong voice in the Montana Council of Defense. He was, part of, uh, he was part of the board of the Council of Defense. He was the editor of the Helena Independent and he started a, a, a newspaper, a short-run newspaper called the Montana Loyalist. Campbell's notion was to, and I'm going to use a quote from the movie The Outlaw Josie Wells because I love that movie, The Outlaw Josie Wells. And it, it's actually a quote that's uh, attributed to, I don't remember his first name, his last name is Lane. He was the head of the Kansas Red Legs. 
And when they were talking about Missouri, he said that they were going to, quote, root out everything disloyal from a Shanghai rooster to a Durham cow. This is what Campbell's intent was. He was going to decide, and I don't know if he took this, well, he took it upon himself to decide who was loyal and who was disloyal. And if they didn't pass his test for loyalty, then obviously they were disloyal and they needed to be removed from Montana because they couldn't be allowed to, to, to stay. E.B. Craighead called Campbell a snake coiled in the fold of old glory. I love that. Uh, E.B. Craighead was actually the editor of the editor and owner of the newspaper, The New Northwest. He'd also served as president of the University of Montana for a while. So you had Campbell on the right, pushing strongly for loyalty measures and uh, the end of the hyphenated American and the Americanization programs and so forth. And on the other side of that, you had what Campbell referred to as the Disciples of Discord. I love the way these guys talk about one another. I mean, it's just, it's, it's good stuff. Um, you have A.C. Townley, who was the head of the Nonpartisan League. Townley wasn't even in Montana. He was in Minnesota, had a big influence in North Dakota. A little bit of an influence in Montana with the Nonpartisan League there, and then a little bit of more influence in 1920 with the governor's election at that time. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So obviously, uh, Townley was on, on uh, Campbell's list. The other one, of course, was William F. Dunn, who was from Butte, was a unionist, was a communist, was everything that Campbell despised. And he just couldn't get rid of it. Had to drive him nuts. And then, of course, E.B. Craighead. And uh, E.B. Craighead's an interesting individual. I couldn't find a lot on him. Uh, we had the papers of his son, Barkley Craighead, in the collection. There were some great, uh, what I'm assuming, uh, editorials in the collection. They weren't really identified as such, but that's how they certainly read. And the newspaper was progressive. It wasn't necessarily leftist in any means, but E.B. Craighead believed that everybody should have a voice, that free speech shouldn't be hindered in any shape, way, or form. And if you really want to get into Will Campbell and everything that he did, you need to read Chuck Johnson's thesis. It's a little dated, 1977, but it is still a quarter. So give it a shot. So this all worked into the 1920 election with Joseph Dixon and this lovely flyer that came out, uh, a message to Montana voters, Americanism versus state socialism. And the, the election in 1920 was interesting because the company hated Dixon. Hated him. And his opponent on the Democratic side was Burton K. Wheeler. And they hated Wheeler too. They hated Wheeler just a little bit more. So they just did a hands off thing on Dixon, which meant that in the press, Dixon was labeled as an amalgamated man. And I searched high and low to find exactly where they started referring to Burton K. Wheeler as Bolshevik Burt, but I couldn't find it. So I couldn't find Boxcar Burt, which I have to dig into a little bit more, but no Bolshevik bird. But what I liked about this election was Dixon's whole motion was that the Anaconda Company wasn't paying its fair share of taxes and it needed to do so. So as governor, he was going to make sure that they paid their fair share of taxes. Wheeler's stick was, if elected governor of Montana, I will not put the ACM out of business, but I will put them out of politics. And 
Albert E. Spriggs, who is the head of the Industrial Accident Board for Montana, wrote a friend of his and said that he overheard a conversation in the Plaster Hotel in Helena where Tom Miller and Charlie Muffley were talking. And Tom Miller decided that he would vote for his, quote, son of a bitch, and Muffley would vote for his son of a bitch, and the two of them would live with whoever got elected. And that's just how they were going to do it. Enter into this fray really quickly was a professor from the University of Montana named Louis Levine, an economics professor. He was hired in 1916. He was asked by the president of the university to do an assessment of the tax legislation in Montana. He'd actually spent the session in 1917 trying to promote progressive tax reform in the state, which he watched every single bill get killed and so forth. And then he wrote a nice little pamphlet about Montana tax legislation in conjunction with mining properties and essentially said that, that the mining properties were not paying their fair share of taxes, primarily the Anaconda Company. The university refused to publish the pamphlet, so Levine had it published independently and the chancellor of the university system suspended him for insubordination. He eventually won the case, was reinstated, but it sparked a small socialist revolution amongst the faculty at the University of Montana when they got together with a fairly new uh, American Federation of Teachers and formed the first, I guess, if you will, public employee union in Montana, Local 120 University, with the university professors. All of a sudden, you've got these newspaper articles asking if the new union at the University of Montana um, was actually communist in, in uh, content. And I love the fact that uh, the newspaper actually defends the university professors, saying that it's well known that Lenin and Trotsky are the, uh, the Russian wrecking firm. But as far as the University of Montana local union went, quote, Mr. Rockefeller organized himself into the Standard Oil Company. The coal miners have perfected a machine that may freeze the nation by artificial means. Why not the university professor? So it was okay for them to organize as far as he was concerned. It didn't stop the 1921 legislature from trying to pass a loyalty oath for teachers. The bill actually passed the Senate and the House in the state legislature and Governor Dixon vetoed it, claiming that it violated the Montana Constitution. So this was a time period of intense fear. You would have thought that the end of the war would have gradually released some of that tension and, and things would have returned to some sense of normalcy, but they didn't. And it would continue to ramp up until you start seeing the major strikes and so forth in the 1930s. Yeah. <laughs>